Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Mercedes. In this podcast, we will be sharing with you some of the most exciting stories from within the automotive industry. We will, of course, be talking about the Mercedes-Benz brand and its cars, but we also look forward to meeting external experts for a very personal deep dive into the world of mobility. My name is Yasmin Blair, and this is Let's Talk Mercedes. Thanks for tuning in. Picture this. You're driving in your new electric car, perhaps listening to our podcast. It's a beautiful day. The sun is out. But back home, a friend asks you, have you ever wondered whether the lithium used in your new ride's battery may have been mined by children? And of course, you want to know straight away what the accusations are all about. How much has the production of raw materials for my car damaged the environment? Is it really possible that this involved human rights violations? Or, let's be even more clear, cars, sustainability, and ethics. Do these three actually match at all? I'm very glad that two people were brave enough to provide me with answers to these questions. Renata Jungo-Brünger, Daimler's board member responsible for sustainability issues, and human rights advocate Phil Bloomer. I was already aware of the fact that large enterprises, they have a large responsibility towards both society and mother nature. But what became obvious to me during our conversation was this. Living up to that responsibility is a tough, a complex, and even contradictory mission, especially when it comes to producing the cars of the future. But what I also learned is if we work together then creating sustainable, humane supply chains is, in fact, perfectly possible. So without any further ado, let's shine our spotlight on a topic that is today more important than ever. I am thrilled to welcome member of the Board of Management of Daimler AG, Integrity and Legal Affairs. Thanks for joining us, Renata Jungo-Brünger. Thank you. And also, thank you so much for your time, Executive Director at Business and Human Rights Resource Center, Philip Bloomer. Hello. Thank you. All right. Now, Renata, let me ask you this question. What is the first thing that comes to mind when you hear sustainability as co-chairwoman of Daimler's Sustainability Board? What meaning does the term sustainability have to you? First, it's my personal matter because it's a matter of heart for me. If I think about um, sustainability and for me, it's important that I'm sure that I can say I'm working with a company which is acting in a responsible way, which is acting in a lot of aspects, really in a social responsible way. That means today, Human rights, naturally, where we discuss further, but it means also climate. It means also integrity. It means also to treat employees, uh, business partners and suppliers in a fair way. But you have to discuss about that in the company. You have to have a culture. And it means also to handle data responsibly, to think about artificial intelligence in a responsible way. All these aspects, also I'm a lawyer, 
I'm a risk manager in that regard. And if you look into sustainability, then you have also a lot of regulations coming up, developing um, during the last few years. It's not only regulations, but it's also the stakeholder requirements um, you have. So you have to fulfill as a risk manager, as a lawyer in the company, you have to make sure that the company is really embracing all the challenges with regards to regulations, capital market requirements, you know, ESG requirements in general, but also stakeholder requirements. And it's clear investors, you know, are asking tough questions about ESG issues and also about human rights. That's something which is important. So you have also to manage that in the right way. And I know our listeners are not viewers, so they can't see Phil. But Phil, you've been nodding to a lot of things that Renata has said. And I'm really thankful for that first response, for that opening, Renata, because you have made clear what the main issue is, that sustainability is such a broad topic. We really need to look outside the box. So, Phil, what exactly were you nodding at? What does sustainability mean to you? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I, I was nodding a, a great deal of what Renata was saying because she was giving that breadth of understanding of, of sustainability. To me, I think the key thing there is, you know, firstly, you've got that social sustainability. How do we make sure our societies can continue to work well as democracies, as places where people are valued? And that's where, of course, the human rights, the workers' rights, community rights all come in so that people know that they're being fairly treated. I think the second is the economic sustainability. How do we ensure that we've got an economy that will be able to continue and not go through the kind of extraordinary booms and busts that we've seen and that brings so much hardship to people? But also, do we, how do we make sure a world economy is actually treating people fairly in terms of their own households and livelihoods? And then, of course, that environmental sustainability as well, which Renata spoke about, and the importance there of knowing that we are regenerating this environment of our planet that is so precious and on which all of our futures depend. And so, again, that environmental that regeneration of the environment that is already profoundly damaged over the last, particularly the last 70 years, That is what we need also in terms of this radical shift in the understanding of sustainability. Renate, you did first and foremost answer that this is a topic that's dear to your heart. But from a business point of view, for Mercedes-Benz, if we stick to human rights in particular, why is that such an important aspect for the company? Is this the way you need to react to what the stakeholders demand of you? Is it what the customers demand? How much of this is about the image that you need to take care of? You know, I give you probably as a start first the frame and the connection, what we have done during the last few years. The management has developed a very comprehensive, sustainable business strategy, which relies on six pillars. And one of these six pillars is uh, human rights. And so you see the importance for our company, what we want to do, um, what human rights means for Daimler, for Mercedes-Benz. It's naturally twofolded. If you look at the uh, challenges we have, it's one our own entities. It's clear we want to make sure that human rights are in fully respected um, in our own entities. And you have the second fold. It's naturally also supply chain management 
today. And with the transformation to the e-mobility and also the need to use for battery cells, for example, cobalt, which is a material, a raw material, which is very much connected to possible human rights violations like child labor. That's only one example. That's only one raw material we need. We said, you know, we need to be absolutely sure that we are managing our supply chains in a way that we avoid any human rights violation because the main point really is, and our fundamental position and also my position is, we only want products that have been produced without any human rights violations. That's the core center. And we work around that. That's because we don't want it. Our employees do not want to um, have products uh, which uh, are produced by violating human rights. And naturally, stakeholders are very tough asking, what are we doing in that regard? Why don't we take a step back and why don't we walk through it very explicitly and have a detailed look? What is your very first step? And Renata, as a company, Phil, as someone who is passing on recommendations? Take it the example naturally with human rights, because you have to implement processes naturally on all our sustainable pillars. But looking at human rights, we have first to evaluate the risks. So what we have done in our company already um, years ago is to develop internally a so-called human rights respect system, where we looked first, you know, how can we systematically and risk-based look in our own entities to make sure that we don't have any human rights violations. And often I get in questions which are asking, how, how are you controlling your supply chains? You know, that must be not so a difficult task because you have these chains and you're going from one to another. No, it's not so easy. Huh? If you can imagine, Daimler has 60,000 direct suppliers. Now, you, you cannot control 60,000 suppliers. So you have to do it on a risk-based manner. So we said, okay, what are the priorities? What are the raw materials? We have then defined 24 raw materials which are connected to possible risks. And then we are starting to work in the supply chain, which is in fact a supply network, which is dynamic. It's not fixed, you know, to consider how do we start. So one is naturally the first tier suppliers where you are implementing proper contracts, proper conditions, proper audits, due diligence, self-assessments. And then you are thinking how you can control the next tiers. And if necessary, for example, within cobalt, you have to go until the mines in the local markets. And it's clear it's a moving target and you have to improve every day and you learn also every day how you manage these processes in a better way. So, Phil, Renata was explaining that, first of all, you need to ensure that human rights are respected along the entire supply chain. So where do you come in, Phil, with your expertise? Yeah, let me start just by saying, you know, I think what Renata said there is very important in terms of a company. You know, consumers are now deeply concerned about what is in the supply chain of the food in their cupboards of the clothes in their wardrobe, and indeed the vehicle in their garage. And so 
They need confidence that in there, there is not modern slavery, there is not hyper-exploitation of workers, there is not the kind of extraordinary environmental destruction which we've seen over the last 70 years. And the danger right now is that with this extraordinary and crucially important shift into essentially electricity, renewable energy, we have to we're going to see a massive boom in so many of the minerals, six-fold increases in the demand for uh, some of those key minerals like lithium and cobalt that uh, Renata's spoken about. In those situations, enormous wealth will be generated, enormous wealth. Will that wealth be shared or will it be essentially monopolized by a small number of companies and investors and equally Will standards be maintained or indeed enhanced in terms of the rights of workers and the rights of communities, or will they be cast aside in the rush, the gold rush, if you like, for these new minerals? So that's the challenge that I think that we face. And what happens in that situation? Well, very often a brand name will say to the factory, we will only take your goods if you have a compliance statement from a social auditor that says there's no child labor, there's no mistreatment of workers, and that there are fire escapes that are left open to ensure that when there is a fire, people can rush out and get away. But they insist then that the factory supplier pays for that social audit. So the social auditor comes, and of course, he's looking to the next contract, and so there's a massive conflict of interest. And you can find these compliance statements, compliance statements for factories where there's it's taken us literally two days of arriving in a country to find very substantial levels of forced labor, human trafficking in those factories. So what we need are companies like Mercedes to really do those deep dives into through their supply chain. And one crucial thing here is not to ask experts to go and do it who are often compromised and not independent because they're looking to a next contract. They need to speak directly to the workers and the communities because the workers know where the bodies are buried in the factory. They know where the, that, that small desk at the side is not for a very small woman, it's for a child. And they know, although the fire exits are opened for the social auditor's presence, they're quickly locked again as soon as that person leaves. Thank you, Phil. So that means that you need to do your own social auditing because any other way, it's a conflict of interest, as Phil explained, if you let the contractor do it themselves. So if you do your own social auditing and you do find out that a company is not working in compliance with human rights, then what happens? Yes, uh, you need to do your own audits, which naturally also we are doing. But I think you need also to connect with international standards and also with initiatives in order to, you know, I think you need to do it from all sides. We are also participating in IRMA, for example, where we want to make sure that we are having raw materials or cobalt only out of certified mines. And we are also working with a company called RSCs Global, which is doing third party audits, which we are naturally looking into it from a very comprehensive way. And in case we would discover, you know, that a supplier is not really adopting or accepting our standards or has uh, not uh, the right working conditions, then first we try to speak with the supplier. 
the question is, you know, shall we take him out of the supply chain immediately or what shall we do? I think the issue is if you take the supplier out of the supply chain and you're finishing the contract, he will show up somewhere in a different part of the supplier network. So what we try to do is to discuss with him, to mitigate the risk and really looking or trying to bring him on a compliant standard. Phil, I hear that you feel that a lot of companies are not doing enough, A, and B, that leads me to my question, how realistic is it to make a change in a foreign country? We're talking about changing systems in foreign countries that have developed over decades in a completely different culture. Is that at all possible? And is that perhaps the reason why other companies aren't doing enough? Well, that's a very important question. The first thing I'd say is that when governments and investors and companies in those countries tell you that these are Western values, they will be directly, persistently contradicted by the workers who are in their factories because their values are that they want a living wage and they want a reasonably secure livelihood for them and their families to live decently. The second thing there is that, of course, national legislation tends to, in many places, particularly with poor governance, it tends to represent what the elites of those countries want. And therefore, very low minimum wages or no minimum wage at all, no regulation of the number of hours that workers should work or the overtime they should be paid, etc., that will be there. And of course, many companies, as you say, will say, well, we're doing everything we should because we're following national law. But what they fail to appreciate is that that national law does not represent the values of the majority necessarily of that country. And what we're seeing now, of course, in, in the case of Mercedes, is that they, along with us, uh, I would say a, a cluster of other companies, are really demonstrating that voluntarily the leadership that's absolutely necessary internationally in order for us to demonstrate what is both a moral imperative in terms of the exclusion of abuse, human rights abuse, and the upholding of environmental regeneration in their operations and their supply chains, but showing also that that is commercially viable. Let's have a closer look at minerals. Renata, my understanding is, is this. Bringing sustainable, climate-neutral mobility on the road is irrevocably linked to using our planet's limited raw materials. Isn't that extremely contradictive? You know, if you want to have technology innovation and technologies development, you know, you have to work with this raw material. But if you look at, for example, at cobalt and battery cells, then you see that the need for cobalt in batteries is reducing enormously. So, you know, if you look three or four years ago and now, you know, it's a huge difference already. So I'm sure that the new technologies will help, you know, that we will use all these resources in a more even limited way. I think that's the first thing. And then, you know, if you need these raw materials, you need to make all these risk analysis and to look around, you know, the supply chain and to manage that in the right way and to make sure that you're doing that in a way that you uh, work with resource preservation, that you look into the attitude, how you're doing it, and that you look into the social consequences out of your supply chain too. Phil, I think you already referred to lithium as gold. Lithium 
is indeed being called the new white gold. Just to make it clear once more, lithium is one of the raw materials needed to produce the batteries for electric vehicles. Is that the only reason it has become so extremely valuable in comparison to any other raw material? Well, of course, these key minerals such as lithium, cobalt, copper, manganese, nickel, zinc, they're all used in what we would call this very important fast transition to new clean energy futures. So they're used in solar panels, they're used in wind turbines, and all of them are now in a state of boom in terms of production. And the prices are rising and going through the roof. And so to give you just one example, electric vehicles currently use around five times more copper than petrol engine cars. And lithium, generally, it's about 20 kilograms of lithium in an electric vehicle. So this is unprecedented demand. And of course, what's happened is that we've had a, a situation where many of those minerals are in places with very high human rights risks. What we need to ensure in this extraordinary moment is that we have a fast transition. And that fast transition will only be fast if it's also fair. Because what we're seeing in so many situations now is not just a boom in production, but indeed a massive increase in serious allegations of abuse. So we've got a situation where these minerals are now tremendously important and we must ensure that we can do the extraction that's necessary because extraction is always dirty. It's always involved. So we must recycle and reuse as much as we can. And where there is need for extraction, we need to make sure that that extraction really brings co-benefit to the local communities and fair work and remunerative work to the miners involved. I think, Yasmin, from this point, you see also how what we said at the beginning, how broad sustainability is and how everything is related. If you um, say, you know, yes, raw material, it goes automatically also in resource preservation, which is also an, a pillar of our sustainable business strategy, but it goes also into the circular economy. So recycling, well, and the question about how we are going into really a circular economy in all kinds of areas will be an enormous important factor. So you see, and environmental issues, human rights issues, societal issues, everything is connected and, and really it covers, you know, everything under sustainability because um, it really goes from A to C, it, it covers the whole supply chain. Are we actually ever going to be seeing, and I'm asking as a complete non-expert, obviously, are we ever going to be seeing another way besides recycling? Is there going to be a more sustainable supplement for these raw materials? Is that realistic? For the time being, I cannot tell you whether this is realistic, but as you know, technical innovation always tries, you know, to go into that direction. And if you see, you know, what happened with cobalt and how we could reduce the need of cobalt in cells of the batteries, I really hope and have trust in innovation and in the innovation spirit of our engineers that we will go also in that direction, you know, that we can reduce that in all kinds of areas. Yeah. And I think just to add to what Renata said, because technological innovation is going to be fundamentally important to our future on this planet. 
but so is the social side of this and making sure that we have genuine shared prosperity being generated by the new cleaner energy economy. And Mercedes is going to be a, a key player in that, as will many other investors, etc. But the, one of the key things here is that we make sure that there is that shared prosperity over this next period. We will do that to a degree and drive the technological change through regulation as well. And so we shouldn't be scared of the right forms of regulation coming in. We should welcome them because they will drive both social innovation in the supply chains, in terms of the treatment of workers and the treatment of communities, but it will also help drive that technological change too. When you speak of the new forms of regulations and technical innovation coming up in the future. Do the two of you actually believe that we will ever experience a world where supply chains are 100% free of human rights violations and or fully sustainable? The end goal has to be that we eliminate human rights violations and we treat every individual on this planet with human dignity and we regenerate the extraordinary damage that we've done to our, the uh, environment on which we all depend. The key point there, though, is, you know, to give an example of that, slavery. You know, if we'd have gone in saying, well, we'd like to end slavery, but it would have been, uh, but, you know, we, it, there'll always be some slavery. The campaigners that started that movement, including the slaves and their uprisings, were 100% against the continued use of people as chattels. And that was fundamentally important to removing. Have we ended slavery around the world? No, we haven't. There's still modern slavery and there's still forced labor and human trafficking. But there's been massive improvements because of that end goal of being 100% free of that uh, extraordinary egregious abuse. Naturally, it must be the goal that we don't have human rights violation in the supply chain. So it must be our goal. But you know, at the same time, I'm also a lawyer who has to manage the issues. And I see realistically, you know, it's still not 100% perfect, but the aim is clear. It should be there. But, you know, we will have, you know, problems, we will have issues where we have to mitigate risks, where we have to go into the supply chains. But if we do that on a regular basis, and if the company has the reputation that we are really strictly managing our supply chains, I hope that someday we will probably be in a perfect world. That would be nice. <laughs> Speaking of living in a perfect world, I think to reach that, we really need to get into more partnerships. And you're a great example. Phil is also the perfect example right here. Phil, why don't I use you as an example? Phil, what are you doing? Or actually, I would like to ask Renata, what does Phil do for Mercedes-Benz better than your own team? What value does it have to bring someone in from the outside? You know, you need to be challenged from the outside because if you are just working in your own company world, you need to have the opinions from outside. And we're doing that on a regular basis. We have a so-called advisory board for uh, integrity and social responsibility, which will rename soon in, in our advisory board for sustainability and social responsibility. And there we have external 
experts. It's a board where we are looking for people, experts in environmental issues, human rights resources, labor and work experts. And there we are discussing, you know, what are the challenges coming outside from some society? You know, how is Mercedes seen? How is the strategy seen? What we need to do better? And that helps really a lot to come to a result like the human rights respect system, which we have implemented in the company. Phil, let me put it this way. There are certain resources on earth that were always bound to run out. We, mankind, we have known for a very long time. We have become engaged in fighting for environmental protection and also human rights for that matter only recently. So do you feel like this is sort of a trend and do you feel like companies hire you as a sort of necessary evil because their reputation requires them to do so and not because they feel morally obliged? Good question. The first thing is that the Business and Human Rights Resource Center takes no money from corporations or from their foundations because we value enormously our independence. So all our funding comes from philanthropic foundations and from a, a small number of European governments who are prepared to support our work. So the reason why it's important for companies like Mercedes is, as Renata has just said, there is an enormous opportunity to learn from the external voices. And particularly that's the case when there is an extraordinary change in the environment as we're seeing now, where we have to have this immense transformation to clean energy futures and are therefore a fast and fair transition. As I've said earlier, from my point of view, you know, we have to be annoying to companies. The anti-slavery movement started some 200 years ago, and that was the first business and human rights movement in the world. So these things have always been part of civil society's need to be involved in the struggles for social and environmental justice. We have to be annoying because companies need that challenge. But we also have to be prepared to give a reputation reward to companies when they're doing more of the right thing, because companies also need encouragement. And that's why one of the reasons why I'm on this podcast today. But the critical thing here is that, you know, as Renata said, it's not just the voices of the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre. It's the workers. It's the women. It's the environmental activists that must be heard because they're the people who really know what is happening at the bottom of these supply chains. Phil, thank you for representing those voices here for them, here with us today. Thank you so much. And Renata, is Phil annoying sometimes? Last question. Oh, no. I hope so. No, annoying, annoying today. In, in a good way. Not. No, clearly, from time to time, if you have tough discussions with NGOs, because, um, you know, they come in with very radical um, requirements. And then we say, you know, yes, we understand. But how can we implement in a practical way? How can we really do it? And from time to time, we really are fighting and we always find solutions. And I think that's the right thing to do, because, we need also from time to time, you know, to ask them for understanding because often companies are not working in the way they think companies work, but you need to discuss together and um, exchange, you know, um, your know-how. I think that's, that's the most important. 
And those are the best possible fights I could imagine. <laughs> Communication is key. Thank you so, so much for giving us so much food for thought. I really hope we can regroup sometime in the future. It feels like this topic is ever evolving. And as a listener, I think you really need to take some time out to reflect, to do your own research, to let it all sink in before you can even begin to build an opinion. So you two have definitely been a great support in helping us do so. Thank you for that. All the best to you. And uh, thank you to our listeners. We look forward to our next episode of Let's Talk Mercedes. Phil, Renata, a round of applause for you two. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye now. Bye. Bye-bye.